Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Ken Margolis, partner of Castle Placement, walks us through his 30-year finance career. We learn how he quickly moved from audit at Arthur Anderson back in the 80s to structured finance with Solomon Brothers as his first client. How Credit Suisse, then First Boston, made him an offer he couldn't refuse to jump ship. How he survived multiple crises and layoffs and why he ended up transitioning to Merrill in 1999. Listen to hear about his long, successful run there all the different groups he worked in, what he liked best, and why right before the great financial crisis, he decided to leave and set up his own business. Enjoy. All right, Ken, welcome to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thank you. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure. Uh, My bio is very long because I'm very old, uh, but I... Graduated from college in 1985. I went to the State University of New York at Albany. Um, Out of school, I joined Arthur Anderson, uh, which back then was a big eight accounting firm. Uh, Now there are no more big eights, big four. Uh, I worked there for uh, six years, left there as a manager, Uh, did a variety of things, but perhaps we'll go into that uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit more. when I left Arthur Anderson, I went to um, what was then called First Boston Corporation, uh, which then turned into Credit Suisse First Boston. Uh, there, I ran the agency and home loan CMO new issuance desk. And I was also a, I'm subsequently a prop trader of credit sensitive securities. And then- Of what, uh, of what securities, sorry? Credit sensitive securities. Yep, okay. Uh, so these are asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities, yeah. Uh, anything that had some something to do with credit associated with it. Yeah. Uh, then in uh, 2000, I joined Merrill Lynch. Uh, at Merrill Lynch, I did a variety of things, including sales, trading, banking. Eventually, ran a group of about 100 people globally. Uh, and then in 2008, um, I started what is now today Castle Placement, uh, which is an investment bank, uh, and that's. Kind of my bio. Awesome. Really helpful to kind of uh, frame everything. So let's go all the way back to SUNY. So when you were back there, were you thinking finances for me? You know, I were, I want to be an auditor. Like what was the thought process? Were your, was your family in the business? And was it just like, hey, this is going to be a really stable career or what? I'm not sure I had a great plan. Uh, I went to Albany. It was a very good school for accounting. Uh, and I just fell into it really. Um, my plan was um, to get into the Big Eight uh, and really only stay there for two years uh, and then go to law school. Got it. So you, had, you thought law school, getting the JD was going to be potentially in your future, practice law, the whole bit. Was there a reason for that? Family? Yeah, my, my mother always told me I should be a professional. Uh, and to her, a professional was either doctor, lawyer, or accountant. Uh, so I figured I'd check off two of those boxes. Does that, does that kind of, is that from her kind of background or like, is, is there a reason for that or just they had heard it from somewhere? Her, my mother and father were a product of the depression uh, and they always thought that you should have a stable job uh, with a stable income. And they always viewed uh, professionals as having stable income. Well, you kind of, so you, you went through through a SUNY and you kind of went through the, the program to start recruiting for one of the big eight back then. And so you, you landed the job. Was it hard to get a job at, at Arthur Anderson back then? Was it competitive coming out of school? It, it was competitive. I did pretty well in school. So it, it um, was not an issue. I uh, had offers from all the big 
uh, eight accounting firms. All eight. Uh, wow. So you, did you have like a ton of interviews, first round interviews and everything? And yes, I had actually 20 interviews uh, and uh, got in a little trouble for that because I wasn't supposed to apply to all the accounting firms that were coming up to Albany. Uh, and my dean of my business school made me go on every single one of the interviews despite having job offers. Uh, so oh, wow. as, as punishment. But anyway, <laughs> it, it worked out okay. <laughs> it worked out. It sounded like, you know, 20 job, 20 initial interviews, you landed eight offers. So clearly it was, uh, you had good grades, I assume, and you're a good student. So you, so you start there and you had a, a really good run in six years. Um, so yeah, it wasn't actually so great at first. Um, oh, yeah, tell I me a little bit not, about that. <laughs> I did not like accounting. Uh, this is prior to um, Anderson Consulting um, or Accenture now. Uh, it, back then, it was accounting and MICD, uh, which is really more uh, consulting, um, using more computers than management consulting. Yep. Uh, and my first two years, I worked on very large, large audits, uh, and I did not like it. Uh, and I was very happy to already taken the LSATs, applied to law schools, I was ready to go. Uh, and I went out for drinks with a partner uh, and told him basically that I didn't like accounting. And he wasn't surprised. Uh, and he said, but you know, I have this um, uh, assignment or engagement going on down at Solomon Brothers, who's a big investment bank back then, uh, that has nothing to do with accounting, it's more consulting, um, maybe you'd like that. So the partner asks you to do something, you usually say, sure, whatever, you know, uh, and, and I did that. And it turned out I kind of backed my way into investment banking because of it. Uh, it was a, um, a group of really young people right out of school that were working side by side uh, with the Solomon Brothers quants, uh, they call them, uh, that basically were doing all the latest securitizations um, that were getting done. So back in the 80s, uh, this is like 87 at this point, um, the first securitizations of asset classes um, started happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Solomon Brothers was the, um, the biggest investment bank at the time that was uh, involved in that. Mm -hmm. uh, and they basically used Arthur Anderson to help them with all those uh, transactions. Um, and what we would do is we would run in parallel. Uh, they would basically, the quants from Solomon Brothers would basically model the deals. And then the young people from Arthur Anderson, like me, would model in parallel uh, because I was pretty good back then in, uh, was Lotus one, two, three. This is before Excel. And I also programmed in C, I was able to uh, do a pretty good job. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, and before I what, knew, what did you love about about it? It was just much more challenging, much more intellectually stimulating, or what? What else? It was way more uh, stimulating uh, intellectually for me. Uh, mm -hmm. The um, these transactions had never been done before uh, in a lot of cases. And can you give me like one example of a type of deal that they were doing that that may nowadays be commonplace, but back then it was novel? Sure. Uh, the deals were basically taking you know, portfolios of assets, um, tranching them into securities, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, issuing them. So you have to remember back then, uh, we did not have huge um, computer access. You know, the PCs back then were very slow. Uh, so you needed to actually model them very quickly. Uh, and the typical deal would be anywhere between a few hundred million to a billion dollars, uh, you know, anywhere from one to 10 tranches, uh, a variety of different structures uh, and a lot of different asset classes uh, backed by agency mortgages, uh, credit cards, auto loans. Uh, can you, can you give us a little peek into what, what the difference of working in Lotus? Was it more like a terminal type uh, interface was there any interface like what was it like like DOS I remember DOS back in the day but like <laughs> what was it was it more like that in terms of like obviously there's no spreadsheet right uh, it was spreadsheet it was similar to Excel okay. uh, so and and you would write macros similar to uh, you, you would today in Excel um, if you wrote them uh, but it, it was much slower uh, and uh, you didn't have as much memory uh, in fact we, when I first started 
we didn't even have uh, disk drives. We had what we referred to as Bernoulli boxes, which were big boxes that stored things. And we'd, for every so deal, we'd have this big box called a Bernoulli box. Uh, you don't want to do it, uh, basically. <laughs> Having a hard disk is much better. <laughs> so you're, so you're kind of, you get a taste of uh, what really structured finance, right? Um, a little bit, um, yeah. a few years in. And so was that like, once you started working on that, you said to the partner, this is what I want to do, or how did you continue doing work? I assume you stayed there in that group for another four-ish years. Yes, exactly. So um, I stayed there and I eventually managed the group. Uh, and we had about 25 people in the group at that point. That's fast. Uh, you, got promoted, you got promoted fast to manager then. Yes. Because you just were doing manager. really well? Doing really well, but also right time, right place. Mm -hmm. um, the um, engagement was um, one of the highest revenue engagements in Arthur Anderson worldwide. Uh, and effectively, we had partners on the job who were good, um, but the reality was the group of us that had started together were really running the group uh, and they needed us. Uh, they need you to uh, stay, so they paid. So were there big bonuses associated I mean, for back then? Were there big bonuses? I know an audit or a, a big four, you don't think of big bonuses, but were the, was it just like big salary increases each year or something? Definitely not. Uh, I, my starting salary at Arthur Anderson was $21,500 plus overtime. That's awesome. Uh, I'll never forget that. <laughs> uh, and when I got promoted to manager, I actually took a pay cut because I, got, I no longer had overtime. We were working 80 to 100 hours per week uh, wow. and the overtime was huge. And then when I got promoted, fast promoted to manager, um, my salary uh, compensation actually went down. What, what was your <laughs> salary at that point? Like 40 something, 50? I'm gonna say it was probably around 60,000 60, somewhere. But, in but that your range. bonus gets eliminated, why? Because you can't work those There hours. were no bonuses. It was just, uh, back then Dollar. you didn't have bonuses. It was just, uh, so, you know, before you were a manager, it was salary plus overtime. Got it. And then okay. Once you so you're so once you're manager, but the, the idea here is theoretically you go manager, then you eventually can work your way up to partner, right? senior manager, and then partner. Exactly. So what was and your thought process? Were you thinking, I'm going to run this, I'm going to go all the way up to partner, like your first job out of school? Actually, a very great question because um, I um, expanded the group to work with other investment banks besides Solomon Brothers. Mm -hmm. So we worked with uh, everyone back then from Drexel uh, to uh, Stanley, JP Morgan, and First Boston. So uh, at First Boston- you doing those, Sorry to interrupt. Were you doing those sales? Were you going and pitching to like the group about what you could do for them and like helping yes. them set it up? So you were the yes, one, you were the face. That's awesome. Okay, so keep going. <laughs> so um, while I was the face, uh, I was speaking to someone at First Boston who ran um, a big group at First Boston, and he hired us. Um, but he said, I have to ask you, why are you at Arthur Anderson? It makes no sense. And what had happened was we had gotten a huge amount of experience because we did all of these cutting edge deals for all of these investment banks. And we actually knew what other investment banks were doing that other investment banks would love to know what they were doing. And I said to uh, the person who is actually has his own hedge fund today, a uh, very well-known person. Uh, and uh, I said, well, you know, just got promoted to manager. Um, I think I'll, you know, probably stay into partner. Uh, and he asked me, what does partner make? And I told him. Uh, what was that like a hundred thousand something? No, it was, um, it was 300,000. Okay. Uh, and uh, Arthur Anderson Partners did very well. Yeah. Uh, uh, he said to me, well, if you join First Boston, I'll pay you that now. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well. This is, 80, this is 87 or 88 at this point. No, no, this is, uh, this is now uh, 1990, somewhere around that right Got it. So you've been promoted to manager. You're kind of running the deals. You're going in. Uh, Got so it. I said to him, actually, I don't want to, this was like in October or something. And I said, I don't really want to wait a year and you know two months before I get paid all that money. He goes, no, no, no. That's what I'm going to pay you um, in December uh, for two months. So I was married at the time. Uh, and I said, that's great. You know, I have to talk about it with my wife. And he like looked at me and said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I still have to talk to her about it. So I went on and asked, talked to her about it with my wife. And my wife said, 
what's wrong with you? Why don't you just say yes? <laughs> I think you're like, yes. you're like, yeah. you're like right. a deer in headlights kind of like, what did he just I, say to me? Completely. I uh, never, ever thought um, coming from SUNY Albany, I would be making anywhere near that money. Uh, you know, that early. Close to it. That early in your uh, career, and, five years. Uh, and years. then I went to work at First Boston uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, worked out well. And what was your um, what was your title? I guess when they brought you, it didn't matter. I mean, they're paying you well, but were you head of a that that? Yeah, I was head desk? of a, a, a new issuance desk, uh, agency and home loan CMOs. We were anywhere between third and fifth, sometimes second in the league tables. Uh, we were issuing a, a huge amount of uh, of agency uh, and home loan CMOs um, every year. Uh, so we had a structuring desk, um, trading component of that. Uh, and uh, that was the area initially that I was responsible for. So tell me how your time there, because you were at uh, First Boston Credit Suisse now for a good eight years. So tell me how your time there evolved. Like you started out doing that stuff, but then, you know, I think you- Yeah, so then, and it's interesting, like um, I've been through a lot of financial crises, and um, this was really my second one. My first one really was back uh, in 87, when I first had gotten, when I was at Solomon Brothers working for Arthur Anderson, um, 1987 was Black Monday, and I saw that crash. And I saw that uh, it really influenced me because all these people, you know, very smart, well-paid people just got fired. Uh, and, and I, you know, and we were standing there and we were thinking to ourselves, well, that must be over for us um, as well. But it, because our area was hot, um, it wasn't. Uh, and that actually, um, I learned that lesson early on. Uh, and the reason I say it is because um, in 1994, um, while I was head of that agency and whole and CMO desk, um, we had a crisis. Um, uh, not as well known as the other financial crises out there, but um, this one was a crisis having to do with mortgage derivatives, uh, and, uh, often called the David Askin crisis. Uh, but in any case, um, it took what was a really profitable area across all of Wall Street uh, and it made it not so profitable. Uh, and because the, of that, the crisis. So <laughs> what was it? Can you explain it for the listeners just a little bit about like what made it a crisis? Just the pricing on all the, the mortgage ba- or collaterally backed securities suddenly tanked. Yeah. So um, it, it was interest rate sensitive product, inverse okay. floaters, IOs and POs. Um, were um, in the hands of a relatively few uh, um, large investors uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the liquidity completely dried up. Interest rates um, had moved against them uh, dramatically mm-hmm. uh, and the um, securities that they owned um, became almost worthless. Uh, and uh, investment banks um, had large positions uh, of, this, of these securities. At first, Boston, we actually did not um, but it didn't matter because um, unless you make money on Wall Street, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to get a big bonus. Meaning, uh, meaning and, you guys weren't exposed to the big downturn. You, weren't, you didn't have these huge losses because you weren't holding the positions, but you still were all, the, the business dried up because no one was taking on additional. Exactly. Okay. And because of that, they fired um, pretty much everybody on the trading floor. Um, there were a few sole survivors. Uh, and uh, and they brought in a new head of uh, mortgages, um, very famous person. Uh, and you can't he say who much it is. Int- you can't say who it is. I can say his name was Andy Stone. Uh-huh. Uh, if you ever read Liar's Poker, uh, you know who Andy Stone is. Uh, in any case, he pretty much fired everyone. Uh, he interviewed you, um, and I remember him interviewing me. He basically called me into his office and. All he said to me was, you know, you know, why should I keep you? And uh, <laughs> I said something like, uh, because um, I'm, you know, good at structuring agency CMOs. He goes, I structured agency CMOs before you. Um, he was at Solomon Brothers also. Mm-hmm. So I, you don't have to tell me what you do. Uh, he said, why should I keep you? And then not to go into a whole long story about it, but basically uh, I told him that I thought I was good at relative value. He had a, what was then a newfangled Bloomberg. He goes, show me a bond that you think has value. This is on an interview. Yeah. Uh, I did. Uh, he's like, hmm, I think it's cheap. Uh, 
And then he said, go buy some. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is like a really So what it meant completely, um, the next like day or two, he comes back out and he said, how many did you buy? And I'm like, none. Uh, and he's like, why not? And they're like, because I wasn't sure you were really serious. Uh, and he goes, well, let me clue you in. Next time I tell you to do something and you don't do it, you'll find out how serious I am. And uh, so it turned out that it was a good lesson. Um, I ended up um, uh, buying um, a lot of those types of securities and others, trading out of them, making a lot of money. And when it came time to um, basically firing people, I was one of the few people that uh, how about how many people were cut out of the, the full, how big was the desk at that point and when he came in and then how? Uh, I, th I would say probably the mortgage trading desk, probably 30 people and maybe five people survived. Wow. Okay. Well, lucky you. <laughs> sounds like a real, <laughs> sounds like a real, uh, real easy boss. Um, so, but tell me. Actually, a he of, is a, he's actually a great guy. A great, so, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, sometimes tough bosses can be good. So tell me a little bit about, um, just the types of deals. So what, what knowledge did you have? I mean, obviously all the structuring you had done in that, in that kind of deer in the headlights, I would, if the guy immediately pulls up a Bloomberg and he's telling you, show me, show me what you would buy. You had just that experience. Like you, what came to your head? How did you even remember or think to, you know, of a specific security? Like, well, what did you. Yeah. I had structured those securities. Uh, and I knew they were trading cheap. So. Got it. Uh, wasn't a huge stretch uh, from, from my perspective. Got it. Okay. So you did a lot of that uh, on the prop, kind of prop trading for. Well, that was prior to the prop trading. So when okay. he took over, uh, he um, decided that he did not want to um, do all the mortgages and he created a commercial real estate group as well as a prop trading group. He asked me to join the prop trading group. Uh, and so tell me what that means. What if the, for the listeners listening, what, what, how did your day-to-day -day change? Day-to-day -day was very different um, as opposed to uh, issuing um, large uh, securitized transactions. Um, I basically bought and sold them uh, uh, for the book of Credit Suisse First Boston. So, so you're on Bloomberg, yeah, are you on Bloomberg all day? What are you, what are you doing to, to get the pricing and to and analyze? Yeah, no, there were, it was not flow securities. It was stuff that traded by appointment. Uh, so it was very illiquid, credit sensitive securities that you had to really understand not only the structure associated with it, but also the credit uh, of the uh, assets that uh, the underlying underlie assets. those securities. Yeah. So. Like what types of underlying assets were you trading in? So is it is it mostly mortgages or like? It, it was everything. It was everything yeah. from uh, residential mortgages, commercial mortgages, uh, credit cards, auto loans. Uh, it was all those things that I had actually um, uh, worked on the structures for when I was at Arthur Anderson. Uh, I actually started trading those types of securities. Did you feel uh, like for, all the work prior was good training for that, or did you feel it, like it was like, it was great training? Great training. And psychologically, tell me about that, as being a trader suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, being a, um, it wasn't that much different than, you had a, a pretty big risk position uh, running a, a new issuance desk uh, as well. Um, but it was a different type of um, position. Um, this was a much longer term hold um, okay. versus the, um, agency CMO, home loan CMOs, where we would buy um, uh, effectively a portfolio that day and securitize it um, in the afternoon and sell it for the next few days. Here we were, I was buying securities uh, and holding them for anywhere from a few days to several months um, before trading out. Okay. So it was a different mentality. And so did you feel like, just tell me how things evolved. Were there, was there ups like severe ups and downs or it sounded like you were doing a good job. It sounds like you were doing a good job. I mean, you survived the first cuts and then did the group grow once they put <laughs> you in the, the next crisis. So yeah. the, the next crisis, uh, in the nineties, I'm thinking back yeah, 1998, uh, that was back when the emerging market, uh, Russian, uh, crisis happened, junk bond crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, part of the credit sensitive securities that we had, um, included that and did affect, uh, uh, the, 
credit securities uh, uh, prices uh, fairly dramatically. So um, the good news is we had traded out and we were fairly light um, at that point. Uh, we did have some securities that um, had issues um, for sure, um, but we were um, we were pretty good at um, doing some crisis trading to trade out of those positions into other positions that made money. Uh, and overall, net net, um, we did well even during the crisis. Um, but that being said, um, the market. Uh, in general for commercial real estate, which was a bigger part of the group that I worked in, uh, wasn't doing as well. Uh, and that meant the end of this group that I was in. Uh, and that led me to go to Merrill Lynch. Do you think uh, that's common? Just whole groups get axed when there's actually sub subgroups or sub little niches in there that that would be benefit to keep? It is more it of a scalpel. Did they just chop off the whole, the whole division that's not doing well when it could actually be the best time to be investing there? Uh, it's definitely common. Uh, in a lot of instances, it's senior people that are getting cut as opposed to junior people. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it really depends. Some firms um, have a lot more stability than other firms um, over the years uh, as well. Uh, but uh, so I, I definitely um, saw a lot of uh, change of the guard uh, throughout my years at, at the different investment banks. And that was your run there at, uh, at uh, First Boston was eight years. So nine years, but yeah. Or nine years, okay, to 299. And then that's when you jumped to Merrill. It's actually to 2000, I think, but yeah. 2000. So yeah, I'm somewhere sorry, in that range. I'm looking at your LinkedIn, I'm cheating. But it said uh, 99. Okay. Oh, then, you're probably, then you're probably right then. Yeah. So, so, you're, um, so you jumped to, um, to Merrill. Tell me why Merrill and was it just prompted simply by the cuts? Um, uh, I, I saw the handwriting on the wall. Uh, and um, at that point, um, the group lasted another year after um, I left. Um, but I thought that it was a good time to move. Uh, and uh, Merrill was um, building up. Uh, their group uh, in um, credit, uh, structured credit, structured finance, and they offered me a good position there. So I took it. As a prop trader, you're kind of now moving back to the structured si structuring side. Was that the idea? Like, what's your thought process there? Because um, a lot of people, when they're thinking sa you know, sales and trading, or I want to go do prop trading, I think there's a there's a little bit of the sense on the in the community that that's gonna you're not gonna develop enough skills to fall back on and like the investment banking background where you're doing, you know, M&A or something like that gives a, gives you a broader foundation. Do you, would you agree with that? Or do you feel like, I mean, obviously you're, you're now kind of falling back on your structured, structured finance a little bit, that jump. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, I think that um, the skills that you have um, can be applied to all sorts of different products. Um, you know, there are people that stay within one product area and one discipline uh, throughout their entire career, but that's not common. I think most people, as they move up, um, they um, either um, do other things or um, they um, control groups that um, are banking, sales, and trading um, as you get more senior anyway. Um, it just really depends on where you came from. Yeah. So tell me about that transition specifically. You started interviewing, talking with people. How did that even work? You're so senior at that point. You've done prop, you know, you're a manager at Arthur Henderson. You got brought over with the kind of uh, big money offer to, to get you over to First Boston. And you probably did really well there. You survived some big cuts. And then um, jumping to, you know, with your next jump, what was the thought process of like, what firm I go to? You wanted stability maybe, but what else? Uh, it, it had, to, I didn't really interview, um, I, uh, one of the, um, senior person at Merrill who, uh, covered me, um, because I was covered by the street, uh, at, at, when I was at Credit Suisse for Boston, um, you know, I told him what was going on. It was no secret. Everyone knew kind of, you know, what, what was happening. Mm -hmm. And he asked me what my next move was. And I said, I don't know yet. He said, well, why don't you think about Merrill? Uh, and I said, okay, what about Merrill? And we talked about it and came up with a role for me that I liked. Uh, and that was really it. There was no, 
and then go to lots of different firms and interview or anything like that. Do you feel like that was pretty common back then? It's just more like who you know and just the relationships where you're picking up the phone and having those conversations? I, I don't think uh, you send out your resume uh, yeah. for jobs like that. <laughs> exactly. So tell me how how it changed again, yet again on you and what it was again. Did it feel like you were going back to your previous role or your, your initial role at First Boston? Yes, it definitely felt more like it was more of a new issuance type role. Mm -hmm. um, capital markets um, is really what I focused on. Uh, and uh, there, um, uh, it was interesting because those securities that um, had all done poorly, um, you know, that was um, to a large degree what the area that I was going into, structured credit and structured finance, um, had experience, uh, and uh, because of that, there were some a lot of good opportunities uh, in the market um, at that point. Uh, it was not good for the people that had, you know, obviously uh, big losses, but um, for those people that had fresh capital, um, there were good opportunities. That's kind of what I try to work for. And this was kind of a new new initiative for Merrill. They didn't have these big no, losses. No, it was a. Merrill had been in the business for many, many years. So they, why did they, you know, if they had experienced those losses, why did they decide to kind of continue to invest and bring you in? And uh, Everyone, you know, everyone experienced did. losses over time. It, yeah. And they weren't significant losses. It was just, you know, it wasn't a great period uh, mm -hmm. for, for anyone in those areas. Um, but the, the areas, you know, today remain, uh, they have, you just have your ups and downs. So you were eventually managing director at Merrill. Tell me a little bit about your progression there, because that was another long stint, um, you know, not a decade, but eight years. So it was, you know, I've, I think in terms of people I've interviewed, you definitely have the longest stints, not just because you're old, but just I've, it's rare to see six years, eight years. You call eight me years. old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying it's even even for the even for the guests that that are in your age range. I've never seen such long stints like you've survived multiple cuts. You've you know, the, sh the shortest stint was six years. Yeah, um, I, and I know today, you know, I have um, my two daughters, you know, basically are out of college and I see them and their friends and they, you know, they move jobs very quickly. Uh, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, you know, that's it's definitely in vogue now and people do it. Uh, so obviously up to them, but I actually think that by staying at a firm for a longer period of time, you increase the likelihood of advancing. Uh, I, I, I think that um, there's a lot of um, fraternal type of uh, chemistry that goes on there. And you know, if you're one of those people that's been around for a long time and you get along with other senior people within the organization, you probably are going to move up as time goes on, you, you know, and, and I know that sometimes um, even back when I first started, um, you can always jump to another area uh, and for more money uh, and, uh, and, and promotion. Uh, and, and sometimes that worked for people. Sometimes it didn't. Um, for me, it didn't seem that smart unless I was really changing um, what I was doing. Uh, and I couldn't have an opportunity within the firm itself. Uh, so that's kind of my thought pattern on it. Um, but, you know, it, it worked for me. Anyway. And so tell me about your, your kind of your progression at Merrill. Was it all the same types of deals for eight years? You just grinding it out kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of different things, sales, trading, and banking. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I had never done sales before. Uh, and I actually loved it. Uh, never thought I would like it, um, but I really did like it a lot. Uh, and uh, can you break down like when you were doing sales, when you're doing trading, when you're doing banking, and, and kind of sure. So yeah. started off doing more capital markets, mm -hmm. uh, which is more marketing, uh, going out to large investors uh, and talking to them about different products uh, that uh, that Merrill basically had um, with instruction finance and structured credit. Uh, and then went into sales, uh, uh, and uh, basically there um, I was selling. You know, I had my bunch of uh, accounts uh, that, that I covered, uh, and 
uh, you know, <laughs> did what a salesperson does. Uh, um, the, I think being a, um, a trader um, gave me an advantage um, as a salesperson, as well mm -hmm. as being a structurer, um, because I understood the different aspects of it. And I could talk the language of anyone um, at client or investor that you know, we were speaking with. Mm -hmm. um, so that definitely helped. Uh, and did very well as a salesperson, uh, and then um, got promoted to actually running um, a banking group um, that initially was raising capital for um, uh, credit uh, uh, type companies. Um, these were hedge funds and special purpose entities, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, uh, that um, we called the Alternative Investment Group. Uh, and I ran that for a while, and then eventually. Uh, got promoted to a, um, a bigger group uh, that uh, ran lots of different departments. Uh, yeah, and so at one point you were you were had about 100 people under you at Merrill. And tell me a little well, bit about what what was the day to day like? How did that shift from when you were like on the ground doing the sales to going to the clients? To I assume you were doing less of that by the time you were. Yes, uh, yes, and no. Uh, you know, it was more of a. Um, managerial type role, uh, and also meeting with large uh, investors and large uh, uh, companies that we were trying to um, get to hire us to raise capital for them. Uh, but it was definitely um, not on the day-to-day flow -day, um, that you would be as a trader or a salesperson uh, or capital markets person. So did you have a lot of problems with like personnel and turnover or were you like, <laughs> how, how was it? Did you have, were you the person that had to fire people? Like when yep. they hired people, fired people, yes, uh, definitely. Uh, yeah, I didn't really like that all that much. Mm -hmm. um, that part of it, the administrative aspect of it was not uh, fun mm -hmm. uh, for sure, um, but it definitely had benefits as well. So, all in all, it was a, a very good run uh, and enjoyed it. So, as you're approaching 2007, what's the thought process of I'm going to go set up my own? Shop. What was, how did you end up getting there? And then tell me about your timing. Yeah, so 2007 was another crisis, another financial crisis. Uh, um, I um, thought that um, there would, it would be a very good time to basically um, leave uh, and start something else. Uh, and um, uh, did they slash like your entire group or what was the, I mean? I left about a, um, a year before that actually happened. Yeah. Um, six months to a year, but um, eventually um, all groups in those areas got slashed and yeah. uh, eventually came back, but uh, got slashed. Um, but uh, my thought process was is that um, I saw the handwriting on the wall. Um, I knew that there would be, just like in all the past uh, crisis um, opportunity, uh, and I thought um, if I was ever going to leave and try and do something on my own. So something kind of struck me is um, a few times you've seen the handwriting on the wall. Is it obvious when you're in there to see the handwriting on the wall? Is it more just like rumor? Is it just the markets, the way they're behaving? What, what allows you to see that ahead of time? Because it sounds like twice you had jumped before, kind of, you know, shit hit the um, fan for a better yeah. expression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely, um, when you're in the thick of it, um, you um, sometimes can't see the bigger picture. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's always a good idea to, uh, to think about where you're going with your career and, uh, what, uh, what opportunities uh, are out there. Uh, so, you know, for me, um, I thought that this was just a good turning point, um, where I could do something else and maybe do something on my own, as opposed to working, you know, only at big firms. That's, surpri that's surprising to me because from what I've seen, at least with this pandemic and the latest kind of crisis, I feel like people have been let, are more hesitant to jump and kind of stuck around at the larger companies, the safety of that. You're going and saying, no, I'm going to go be set up my own shop. What, what gave you the confidence? You know, maybe you didn't know the extent of the global financial crisis when you jumped or what it would be like, but tell me a little bit about the, the confidence you needed to have that this is the right time when you saw the writing on the wall. Uh, you're never sure. I mean, I wasn't sure um, about it at all, but I thought that the 
um, there would be a big opportunity uh, as at this point, the market had not completely crashed. Um, it was having its ups and downs, um, but uh, the handwriting was on the walls that it would crash. Uh, and I thought at that point, there would be some sort of opportunities um, to um, pick up securities uh, cheap uh, and do something associated with that, raise capital, do something that would make it um, opportunistic um, so that I could take advantage of it. So tell me, as you approached that decision, how did you even prepare for it? Did you have like, you had to get the legal documents and, you know, get, get the... Well, the first thing is I had to leave Merrill Lynch. So you, yeah. you go on garden leave for a long period of time uh, right. and non-compete, et cetera. Um, and then once my garden leave was up, um, what I started doing was consulting uh, for uh, large private equity firms that were um, either owned banks um, or um, uh, that were in distress or owned other types of financial companies that were in distress um, or were being opportunistic and looking to buy uh, those types of portfolios. And, and they needed somebody to tell them process. what's in this and how much is it really worth kind of thing. Yeah. As best you could, because there was no real market um, uh, guidance. It was all over the map as to where, where prices were. And value was more um, you know, something that you had to look down the road um, to see what was going to come back and what was not going to come back. Mm -hmm. Some stuff just became worthless, uh, but there were some securities that were still out there and assets that had good value. So tell me about, you know, a little bit about uh, Castle Placement and, and how you, so you were doing some consulting for how long was that, a year, two years? It's about a year, um, yeah. year and a half. Uh, and uh, we um, uh, basically realized that as we were coming out of the financial crisis, um, my partner and I, uh, uh, we, we knew that financial companies were gonna need capital. Uh, and uh, we actually raised capital during that period um, for a fairly um, well-known uh, today, uh, firm uh, that uh, that you know, we said, "Wow, this is interesting," because uh, we really weren't thinking more about capital raising. We were thinking more about at that point consulting slash you know hedge fund type of opportunities. Um, but um, when we were able to raise, meaning, meaning raising uh, your own fund, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. or, or something to that effect. Yeah. Uh, and what ended up happening was we saw that capital raising. Um, uh, was an interesting niche that no one was really doing uh, for these types of companies. Mm. Uh, and uh, we, um, out of the gate, did a very big capital raise, um, uh, made a lot of money. Uh, and we said, why don't we do you mind this? sharing? Do you mind sharing how much you made <laughs> or a range? I'm not going to do that, uh, <laughs> but it was good. Uh, yeah. And uh, and what ended up happening is initially, um, and this is what Castle Placement is today, mm -hmm. um, we are an investment bank. We raise debt and equity uh, for uh, companies and funds. Uh, we're industry agnostic. Uh, our capital raises have ranged from as small as 5 million to as large as 500 million, but our average capital raise is about 100 million. Uh, and um, after 12 years, uh, we've pretty much raised capital for every uh, industry out there. Uh, we have. What's 25. the most common? Is it more like the financial institution is your most common client, or what's? Initially, that was the case, and then uh, we we uh, widened um, our our breadth. Uh, and uh, today, um, financial institutions, real estate, uh, technology, energy are probably the top three. Uh, that we work in, but uh, we, we have absolutely raised capital for everything from uh, farms, uh, apparel companies, uh, things that you wouldn't associate someone with my background. Uh, and the reason for that is because we hire bankers who have the expertise in those areas uh, to um, affect um, capital raises in those transactions. And how do you, do you feel like that initial large transactions kind of helped you just propelled you in terms of reputation and everything in terms of 
bringing up other deals or what yeah i mean what, is, what has allowed the, you to do this for over a decade successfully <laughs> well what's interesting is we we've changed completely um how we operate from when we first started um i would call us um more an accidental fintech investment bank uh than anything and um, when we first started we did it the old-fashioned way we did it the way that we did it at uh, merrill lynch and first boston uh, and which was basically we used our Rolodex of people that we knew to get assignments and we used our Rolodex of investors to basically um, uh, invest in those companies. Uh, as time went on, we realized quickly our niche was much bigger than uh, what you would typically do at a large investment bank where you pretty much are dealing with large companies, um, multi-billion dollar companies and very, very large institutional investors. Um, here, our, um, our focus is anywhere from early stage to lower middle market. There are over a million companies in the US alone like that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as far as investors go, there's hundreds of thousands of institutional investors that we deal with um, that invest in these things. And we realized quickly that we couldn't use a Rolodex um, to basically cover um, all those companies and all those investors. So we invested heavily in data and technology mm -hmm. uh, so that um, today um, we have about 400, 500,000 companies uh, in our database that we are constantly staying in front of um, through technology, social media, um, et cetera, um, talking to them about what's going on in their industry, um, when they have capital raising needs, reaching out to them, uh, as well as investors, um, we have a, about 100,000 investors in our database. We have very granular data on what each contact at that investor um, uh, invests in, so that when we get hired, um, we're not guessing um, you know, who to go to. Uh, but um, by using a matching um, algorithm, uh, we effectively uh, can go out to a, a large number of investors, yet at the same time, not um, be spamming the world uh, to you know, find an investor. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's worked out um, fairly well. We've added a lot of technology associated with it. We've got apps. Uh, we've done a lot of different things that I never thought that we would do as a uh, investment bank and large investment banks you know, right now are not doing uh, to make um, the capital raising process a lot more efficient. Talk to me about talk to me about your team, the size of your team, and how many are in like that developer or kind of technical hires versus the the pure investment bankers that are maybe once you sure. find that kind of more niche, uh, you know, yeah. group of investors. You know, how, I assume they are picking up the phone at some point, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'll start on the. We we kind of think you need fifty fifty. So we need yeah. we think you need fifty percent great investment bankers and fifty percent great data and technology to actually um, raise capital for. Um, the market that we're in. Um, we have uh, 25 bankers. They um, are all over um, the map on their backgrounds. Um, many are from large Wall Street firms, many are from large asset managers, and many are from uh, the corporate environment. Uh, they all, um, the, at least the more senior bankers, have you know, 25 plus years experience doing this, uh, and they can basically talk the language of any company that comes through the doors when we had doors uh, pre, pre COVID yeah. uh, uh, through Castle Placement. Uh, and, and we think that um, you need bankers to close deals because um, they're complicated and you can't just do it through data and technology. On the data and technology side, we have a relatively small group um, that basically does it. Um, it is a big focus of mine. Uh, my um, structuring background, um, back that could program uh, uh, definitely has helped, uh, you know, especially in the beginning when it was just me uh, yeah. that was doing it. Uh, but um, at the end of the day, um, what we've developed is a bunch of, um, in addition to the data, which is really, really important, um, very hard to maintain, very hard to clean and uh, keep it going. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that data is extremely valuable. And then when you combine it with the technology that we've created, um, it's a one, two, three punch with the investment bankers that we think gives us a big 
advantage versus our competition. It's exciting. Well, you know, you've been around for a, a good while, doing well. So, congrats on all the all the success. And, thanks to you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about so before we before we call it. Um, any final words of wisdom specifically on just your path looking back? Because um, you know, you kind of had a few pivots here and there from structured finance, you know, from audit to structured finance, then to eventually to, to another firm, then to the prop trading, back to structured finance, and now on your own. So there's there's been a you definitely touched on a lot of different kind of um, functions. You've ran large teams, you've been on the ground, you know, executing the trade. So any any words of wisdom to people who are interested in just the world of finance right now, today? I'm not that comfortable doing words of wisdom, but <laughs> I would say that the one thing that, you know, I think you should always do is um, treat people um, that, you, that work for you, that work with you, and that work above you um, well. Um, you know, I think looking back over the years, the best contacts that um, I, I continue to, to use Go back, you know, twenty plus years, uh, and uh, some of them I worked for, some of them I worked with, and some of them worked for me. Uh, some of them who worked for me have gone on to do great, great things, uh, and uh, it's it's amazing. Uh, and those are the best contacts that you'll have, uh, you know. And and I would just say that as you are going through your career, you should keep your eye on that that ball. Uh, to make sure, because you get lost sometimes, uh, you know, in, in the, the nitty gritty of realizing that, you know, we're all part of the same team uh, and we help each other. Um, it's not just today, it's tomorrow too. All right. Love it. Well, listen, Ken, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing your wisdom. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.